I'm Alex Trepchinski. I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Hey guys, this is a special episode given what's going on right now with the former Supreme Court ruling related to Roe versus Wade. I wanted to pop in and provide some insight into what really people are talking about with regards to abortion, especially second trimester abortion. If you're not aware, the first trimester is the first 14 weeks, the second trimester of pregnancy is the second 14 weeks, the third trimester is the last 14 weeks, and that's the three trimesters after which, of course, you have a baby and you go on living your life. But there are a lot of situations and scenarios in which a second trimester abortion might actually be helpful. Um, Generally speaking, when people are talking about you know, aborting babies at 32 weeks or 36 weeks, it's pretty nonsensical. I, I don't know of anybody in the United States, an OBGYN who does abortions after 23 weeks. And even then, it's a really, really, really hard conversation. It's not an easy decision on behalf of the parents or the doctors. The type of procedure required after about 13 weeks is called a dilation and evacuation, where the baby is actually grabbed, torn apart, and removed from the uterus. But there are certain situations in which that should still be an option for women. It's not like, oh, you know what? I'd change my mind. I don't want to do it. That's, I've never, ever, ever been faced with that in my professional career. And while that's not to say it doesn't happen, what's at stake if we don't have abortion services available is that women are not able to make an informed decision because they need risks, benefits, alternatives to every intervention in order to exercise their autonomy. So a a scenario I give in this episode is related to anencephaly. So let's say that, you know, you have a normal pregnancy, you're going in for your formal anatomy scan, which generally takes place between 18 and 20 weeks, ideally. Sometimes it's a little bit later, but the reason we do all the prenatal genetic screening and then this formal anatomy scan is because it's still within the window of a reasonable abortion procedure which in this case, like I said, is a dilation and evacuation. But anencephaly is when the brain doesn't develop. It's the most severe, one of the most severe types of neural tube defects. And basically the baby's brain doesn't develop. So you could go through the whole pregnancy. You eventually have a baby that's not going to survive for very long. And while it's not my position to say that that's okay or not okay, a woman who is going to be giving birth to a baby who is anencephalic, again, no brain tissue, is going to be faced with either a very, very, very hard postpartum period where they have to also say goodbye to their baby, even if it's months afterwards. And they oftentimes might choose, you know what, let's just end this. Let's not let this baby develop any further. And let's just end this because this life is not going to survive past, let's say, a few days to a few months. If a woman doesn't have the opportunity to do that, then she can't exercise her autonomy. And I'm not saying abortion's right or wrong. The decision to have an abortion is one of the most difficult decisions that a woman and her partner will ever have to make. And while there are people that might be laissez-faire about that, they are definitely the minority. So I think it's really, really important to understand that most abortions, especially in the United States, I really can't speak about the rest of the world, but in the United States, most abortions are taking place before eight weeks. And that's when there's a very, very tiny little embryo 
you wouldn't even necessarily identify it as embryonic tissue necessarily, unless you really knew what you were looking for. And it's done either through medication, which is a combination generally of mifepristone and misoprostol. Mifepristone can only be attained at centers like Planned Parenthood in most states. And that, that's been my experience. Mifepristone is increasingly difficult to get, but that combined with misoprostol will terminate a pregnancy that perhaps wasn't intended, perhaps wasn't wanted. Even if a woman is using an IUD or birth control and they get pregnant and they don't have the financial means, whatever, it's, it's not my position to, to weigh the risks and benefits for them. It's just to help them obtain the information in order for them to make a decision that's right for them and their family. The other option is a, is a surgical abortion, which is called a DNC, separate from the DNE I described. But a DNC is when you dilate the cervix gently and then you just scrape out the early tissue. It doesn't require grab and pull because it's just early embryonic tissue and placental tissue. And that's like a more one and done definitive, right? Whereas the medication might still result in the need for completion with a DNC. And then, of course, you could also just expectantly manage and pray for you know, a miscarriage or whatever else. But this is all on the person who is pregnant. And if you know anything about me, my number one priority is to support people in taking care of their bodies and taking responsibility for the aftermath of that. And even if a person has a miscarriage uh, at five weeks or they choose to have an abortion at five weeks, it is really, really hard. And so when we start squabbling about Roe versus Wade and this and that, we miss the, the picture here that there's a person who's going through this really challenging thing. And no matter what our preconceived notions are about right and wrong, it's ultimately not our decision. So Roe versus Wade is, it was a ruling from back, you know, decades ago. It was a Supreme Court ruling. And it was later sort of ratified, is not the word, but it was later applied to all states that this needs to be a legal, an option for women to have. And many states have been pushing back on that. I don't necessarily, well, the other part of this is that the United States, the federal court system, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, is really only meant to be issuing statutes or rulings that become set precedents for later rulings as it pertains to the original Constitution the Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, etc., as the U.S. Constitution has been ratified over and over and over again, we've ended up in a position where the states have less control, the federal government has more control. And even as, as, as recently as 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court has reminded everybody through statements that there are certain powers that, are, that remain with the states. The federal government, in, in ruling the land, Right with statutes, etc., and codifying these things into law, is operating somewhat unconstitutionally in that way. The states are supposed to have sovereignty over what happens. The problem is that when we give it to the states, many states, including my own state of Kentucky, have made it impossible for me as a doctor to provide a woman with risks, benefits, alternatives using my expertise and my experience so that they can exercise their autonomy. And that might be their own conversation with spirit, source, God, call it what you will, it might be due to psychosocial factors, socioeconomic factors, but for whatever reason, we don't value personal responsibility and free will. Instead, looking to our politicians, our religious leaders, etc., to tell us right and wrong. 
And I know that this is hairy, but what we're missing here is is the nuance in this conversation. And that's why I wanted to reboot this episode that originally appeared on my old podcast, which was called the Obigaino Wino, and then I rebranded it to Beloved Holistics, and then I called it Quits, and I started the Holistic Obi-Juan podcast. But the second trimester abortion piece is really critical, and this episode really is a summary of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their practice guidelines pertaining to second trimester abortion. So that's anywhere from 14 weeks one day up until about 28 weeks. So this is going to be a loaded episode. I know it's going to be very confronting. If you don't even want to think about second trimester abortion, then maybe this episode isn't for you. But I think in this episode, what I really tried to capture was that there is still a good reason for women to have this. I I certainly don't agree with like the willy-nilly like, ah, we have enough kids and you're 30 weeks pregnant and you want to terminate your pregnancy, which is why I don't ever see that happening. Let me repeat that. There are not abortions happening in the third trimester, period. And only up until about 23 weeks is it really even an option to do a D&E. Personally, my experience with a D&E, which is the grab and pull technique, which has to be done in the second trimester because there's too much going on there for you just to use medication. It generally doesn't work. So the, the snatch and pull method is horrific. And I talk about that in this episode. It is horrific. I did. I was in residency and I did a couple of them and I decided right off the bat, like, I will never, ever, ever do this again. So we need to be able to offer women early counseling and early options so that they don't get to the point where that is their only option. And in some states, it's not even good enough that at four weeks, women can exercise this right. And I know that this is going to ruffle some feathers. I know that you're going to fall on one side of the argument. Many people are not going to appreciate this, sort of my advocacy for, for autonomy. But just like in birth, just like in death, just like in counseling around hormonal contraception, vaccines, how we raise our kids, we have to find the nuance. And we have to realize that there are things that we all agree on. There are also things that we all don't don't even agree on and don't even realize it. And if we can't get back to having honest conversations and asking more questions and sitting with those questions before we ask more and before we need to push or we want to push our agenda, because more things like COVID are going to come up in the future, we have to be able to live with nuance. And it's uncomfortable. It's painful. You might end up giving me a thumbs down on this and give me a one out of five stars review. I hope you don't. Because I'm having a lot of honest conversations with people around the unknown. And there's a lot of unknown in medicine, in healthcare, in death and aging and everything in between. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. The episode is, uh, there's no sponsors for this episode. And I hope you can just sit back and just listen to this with an open heart and an open mind. So here is the rebroadcast of Second Trimester Abortion from my first podcast, Beloved Holistics Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to jump into second trimester abortion. But first, we have a quote from Lauren Crenn. At the deepest level, a woman yearns for you not to take her, her way of expressing herself personally. She wants to be fierce, full of loving rage, as soft as a feather in the wind and as sad as an ocean in a tropical thunderstorm whenever the fuck she wants. If you don't react and love her through her expressions, the core of her essence, then your kingdom allows her to bloom like a wildflower, to spread her wings and fly, to be the woman she always longed to be. This is all she wants and asks from you. I think that's great.
right? I don't know where I found that quote, but um, my wife and I are three months out. And now that there's COVID restrictions jumping back in, and this is our second COVID baby, we're considering a home birth. And that might mean that I need one of my local midwife friends to jump in and take care of us so that I can be dad and not doctor, but that's going to be hard regardless. So anywho, we're talking about second trimester abortion, obviously a lot of controversy around this topic. Let's just do a very, very quick um, lesson on the legality of this thing. In uh, 1973, you've all heard of Roe versus Wade. This is when the U.S. Supreme Court determined that it's unconstitutional for individual states to ban abortion. That's a good thing as far as as a woman's rights um, are concerned and autonomy. Since then, many states have passed laws that limit access to abortion. So it's not illegal. It's just we're going to make it really, really, really hard. So there was the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act of 2003, which said that dilation of evacuation, which we're going to talk a lot about today, the D&E is banned unless fetal demise occurs before the surgery. In other words, you can't see, an, you know, you can't see a viable fetus with heartbeat at the time of the D&E. So there's that. A D&E we're going to get into, but it is a brutal procedure. It's, it's tough. Even as an OBGYN, I, I, I know it's heresy to speak out about certain things, but for me, it just wasn't for me. It's the reason I couldn't pursue family planning, and I'm glad that there's others that are willing to, to provide this service. Anyways, we'll talk more about that in a second. In, by 2011, there were six states that had banned abortion at greater than 20 weeks gestational age due to concerns around the fetus feeling pain. I have absolutely no idea how we could determine if a fetus feels pain or not. And then how do you define pain? Emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical, right? So in my practice, it, this is a really, really challenging point because people are like, of course I can't feel pain. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. That, that's, that's, I just don't know. So anyways, um, we're going to get more into all of this, but this is just the, the sort of history of this. Um, and at present, only about 65% of providers offer abortion services at greater than 12 weeks gestational age. Only around a quarter offer it at, at uh, greater than 20 weeks gestational age. So access to abortion is the problem. It's not so much the legality, although there are laws that are, are threatening the, the Roe versus Wade determination, which by the way, was only like 50 years ago. Let's keep that in mind. Prior to that, it was people were seeking out, literally seeking out alleys and underground abortion services that were, you know, of questionable hygienic practices, etc. And some of them were kind of brutal, you know. So anyways, <laughs> not any more brutal than some of the stuff that we actually do in the operating room, but at least it's not, um, at least it doesn't lead to horrible infections and often anyways. So that's the, the brief history. There's, there's a lot more. I mean, there's, there's volumes of books, whole shelves of books in the library if you want to really, really read into the history of female autonomy and abortion specifically. This is a uh, really, really hot topic. And like I said, it hasn't been long that we've, that we've actually legalized the practice of abortion. So, all right. So the big question then is, why did you wait until the second trimester to get an abortion? And this is where I align myself entirely with a woman's right to in informed consent and uh, right to refusal and all of the other rights that she has over her bodily autonomy. So the various responses to that question could be, I didn't have health insurance when I first found out that I was pregnant. I had no idea I was pregnant. I couldn't find a doctor to refer me to an abortion clinic until now. Think back to the access issues. I wasn't able to get off time from work. I need the money so badly. 
I just found out from my second trimester formal anatomy ultrasound and subsequent diagnostic testing that my fetus has anencephaly. There's only one abortion center in my state, and I rely on public transportation. Or lastly, it's none of your goddamn business, Senator McConnell. Maybe you should instead focus on improving access to women's health and contraception in your great state if you feel so invested in this conversation, you unbelievably arrogant son-of-a-bitch typical old white fart. Those are all reasonable responses to why wait until the second trimester to get an abortion. Um, and, and of note, the practice bulletin also covers management of pregnancy failure at less than 20 weeks gestational age and fetal demise in the second trimester. So we're not only talking about live fetuses. Hang on. Kiddo needs some love. Hang on. You know, if anything, this uh, experience of listening to my podcast, which is not in, not in a, I'll help you, baby, in one second, is not a professional studio. It's really just a guy with a very cute little daughter who runs around and makes all kinds of noises and calls for mama and dada to help her with things that she knows she can't have. And that's all that we're doing here. We're just regular people. Bye-bye. <laughs> what you didn't hear was me reading her about six books just now and her telling me all done after about the second page. So delayed gratification is something we're still working on. Anyways. I'm just a regular man with <laughs> some regular hobbies, like reporting cop podcasts about second trimester abortions. Let's talk about how they're performed. The surgical method is the one that we probably talk about the most because it's definitive. It, it's harder to do a medical abortion after 20 weeks. It, it really just is. So D&E is the most common thing. That's the dilation and evacuation. 95% of second trimester abortions are performed in this way. It's possible that medical abortions are underreported. That's what, at least what the practice bulletin suggests. That could just be because it's like, I have some reason why I can't come out and talk about this thing that I want to do um, for religious, cultural, family, whatever. Like perhaps, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons a woman could be pregnant and not have, you know, the Instagram life and, and whatnot waiting for her to announce this pregnancy, right? So there's, there's a whole bunch of things that could lead to underreporting, but we'll just leave it at that. 95% are DNE. It is far more cost effective. It's usually more fast, uh, faster, <laughs> more fast than um, the medical methods, which we're also going to talk about. It's also more predictable. You know, you're in, you're out, perhaps a little bit less emotionally challenging because you're not taking medicine, waiting for something to happen or to pass at home, which could be very traumatic because there is a fetus at that point. So surgical also carries lower risk of complications, 4% versus about 30% with the medical methods. You know, the primary issue we are concerned about at this point is retained POC, products of conception, but then pain and GI side effects are also um, less compared to using misoprostol. So, so there's that, misoprostol and mifepristone, of course, we'll talk about it. Per procedure, the, this is the part that I had a really hard time with. I remember being in an operating room with a fourth-year resident, and she remained a good friend of mine. She still is a good friend of mine. She was the chief, I was the intern, and a fellow intern. Uh, in my class, he and I were assisting because it's very, very, um, th this procedure is very rare. Like second trimester abortions are very, very rare. So if you have, you know, any opposition to this, this is not something we're doing on a weekly basis. This was something I saw maybe, maybe 10 times in four years of residency. It's a very, very um, busy referral center at Kaiser. So the procedure is exactly what you've read about on the internet. You grab and you pull and you dismember the fetus. That's it. So you can imagine how that's a pretty challenging thing for any human who's, who's sort of 
aware and present. But that's the, the burden that we carry as OBGYNs, especially if we have focused on family planning. And like we mentioned before, there's a whole bunch of reasons, including um, life-limiting conditions that can be diagnosed prenatally in which perhaps terminating the pregnancy in this way outweighs potential suffering and harm to the fetus, to the family, to the mother later down the road, you know, if it goes to, if it goes to term or, or whatever. So not to mention, you know, risk of some of those life-limiting conditions too the risk of demise, right, spontaneously in the second and third trimesters. So there's basically no way around some of these really, really challenging things. So imagine a woman is diagnosed with, say, like trisomy 13 or something. Alternatively, there's something called an intact DNA. You really just overly dilate the cervix so that the fetus can just kind of slip out. You just pull it out very gently, and that's that. Generally, before either of these procedures, <clears throat> the cervix is going to be softened and dilated with osmotic dilators. They're like these little um, sort of suppositories that you stick into the cervical canal and they swell up with water. And as they swell, they just slowly dilate the cervix. It's really, really comfortable and gentle as opposed to some of the other methods we use for dilation. It's also, these procedures are also often done under ultrasound. It's not, not necessary, but you know, if you're in a major hospital that does these procedures and you have access to a, an ultrasound, why not? We always did it with an ultrasound because you want to make sure you know what you're grabbing at and make sure you haven't perforated, et cetera. Um, in pregnancy, as you recall, the uterine fundus especially gets very, very soft. So it's very easy to perforate. So you have to be very, very gentle given how big the instruments that you're using are and, and um, the, the need for such excessive dilation for this procedure to be possible. In certain, certain cases, you may need hysterectomy or hysterotomy. That would be like, you know, for specific congenital problems. Like, let's say that um, we wanted to make sure that the fetus is entirely intact and there's some sort of medical contraindications. You may need to do a hysterotomy. Um, it's not really a C-section, right? You're doing it to remove a fetus intact. Yeah, that would be like doing a C-section for this purpose would be like all other methods have failed and we really don't have any other options. So there you have it. All right. Medical options. There's regimens listed in box one. You can either give mifepristone followed by misoprostol, or you can give misoprostol alone, or you can do oxytocin alone if misoprostol is not available. The most effective method is mifepristone followed 24 to 48 hours later by misoprostol. And the, the, the regimen I would recommend is 200 milligrams of mifepristone given orally and then one to two days later, you're going to give misoprostol 800 micrograms vaginally and then 400 micrograms every, and that can be vaginally or sublingually every three hours up to a maximum of five doses. But honestly, if you need to give more, I've, I've, I've seen that as well. Um, alternatively, you can give lower doses of misoprostol. Sometimes misoprostol can cause GI issues. So 400 micrograms, just start with that and then go every three hours. I guess after you've, you've reached the fifth dose, you need to start considering, is this, is this going to work, right? Is there something more that we could be doing or differently that we can be doing? And again, if you don't have mifepristone, just start with misoprostol. You can give 600 to 800 micrograms up front and then 400 every three until you have a baby. And then oxytocin, it's going to be high dose and just slow infusion and just keep, keep cranking it up until you get a baby, basically, up to like 100 units, which is quite a bit. <laughs> it says the... Uh, the maximum dose actually is 300 units to be given over three hours, which is quite a bit. Remember, we're using milli, milli units um, per, per minute when we're infusing in labor, so quite high dose compared to that. If you're using the mifepristone followed by misoprostol, it's 90% effective, and the study that reported that 90% efficacy started miso 24 hours after the mifepristone. The induction interval is going to be shorter, meaning shorter time from administration to getting this thing over with, 
fewer adverse effects than meso alone, um, lower risk of retained POC, or need for hospitalization. Those are all really important. Unfortunately, mifepristone is sometimes hard to come by. So there you have it. Another big question people have is, is there a way to ensure that the fetus dies prior to this procedure? And there are ways to do it. You can snip the umbilical cord. You can inject digox- uh, digoxin into the fetus or inject potassium chloride into the fetal heart. So killing the fetus prior to the procedure does not increase safety, does not decrease procedure time. It doesn't decrease difficulty of the procedure itself. However, it may shorten induction time in a medical abortion. So maybe some benefit to the medical abortion, to the medical approach, but not so much to the, to the procedure. There's that. Some people may feel more comfortable with this. I don't know how to counsel on, the, counsel on this because this is, that's not a request that we're going to get very often. But I understand why people might ask that. So what, you know, what's the, what are the risks of some of this stuff? The abortion does carry an overall super low risk of maternal mortality. It's like much, much, much less than 0.1%. In fact, there's a 14 times higher likelihood of dying in childbirth than with abortion. So these, this is fairly safe. can never say anything is a guarantee, but I will say that as the pregnancy gets further along, meaning a higher gestational age abortion, is going to have a higher risk of maternal mortality. So it's 0.1 in 100,000 at eight weeks gestational age versus nine in 100,000 at 21 weeks. So that's certainly important to remember. But so it's a, you know, you could say it's nine times greater, a nine times greater risk, almost 10 times, but it, the absolute risk is still very, very low. Let's remember relative versus absolute risk. So mortality alone uh, aside, Post-abortion hemorrhage is also something that is important to talk about. So when we talk about post-abortion hemorrhage, we're talking about bleeding that is excessive sufficiently to require transfusion or hospital admission, or if you can quantify it to be greater than 500 mLs. It's only seen in about 0.6% of second trimester abortions. And you're at high risk if you're an older patient, if inadequate cervical ripening is achieved, if general anesthesia is utilized. Or if you have a history of greater than one C-section, could be due to anything from retained POC to cervical lacerations, again, due to inadequate cervical ripening. So you put a big instrument in there and you tear the cervix, you're, you um, <laughs> now have a problem on your hands. Uterine atony, uterine perforation, abnormal placentation, or DIC. Of, of course, DIC is going to be very, very rare, but there you go. Let's talk about management of a couple of these different, different causes of hemorrhage. So one of the most common causes is retained POC, but again, it's less than 1% of DNA cases are going to have anything retained, especially if you're using ultrasound. You can generally see when the uterine cavity goes from filled to collapsed. For the, of the medical cases, around 8% of second trimester abortions in which mifepristone is used are going to um, experience retained POC. That number is going to be a little bit higher if mifepristone is not used. And in general, I mean, like this is one of the big advantages to surgical abortion is that it's kind of a one and done sort of thing. Retain POC in, you know, the surgical method is, is obviously much less, less seen. So this is one of the huge advantages um, to just doing the procedure versus taking medication. And that should be a big part of your counseling. Uterine atony. And, and by the way, if there's retained POC from a medical abortion, you're going to have to go back for, you know, under some light sedation, a DNC procedure in order to clear out any retained POC, just like we would with any other abortion or retained POC postpartum. Uterine atony, uh, 2.6% of DNE cases. This is probably one of the more likely scenarios. Again, more likely in older patients or history of prior C-section. 
you're going to manage it in the same way that you would otherwise with uterotonics, with fundal massage. Um, you may need to do additional curetting of the cavity because perhaps the uterus is atonic due to some little shred of membrane or something like that that's, that's remaining in there. Cervical lack is the most common, according to the practice bulletin, 3% of second trimester abortions, including both medical and surgical. Risk factors include use of mechanical dilation, nulliparity, meaning the cervix is never dilated naturally, higher gestational age, and provider inexperience, which we have talked about already. You know, you haven't, you've, you've done 10 of these from your residency training, you now try to do it and you don't adequately dilate the cervix. You put an instrument in there and the cervix tears. If it's a really superficial cervical lack, you can sometimes use silver, like a topical silver nitrate. But if it's deeper, you're going to have to use suturing and you're going to, you know, grab it with alices, pull it towards you, and then, you know, start suturing to approximate the entire laceration. It could all the, go all the way back to the fornix, the fornix um, or the vaginal sidewall if it's, if it's really deep. And hopefully, you know, if that were to happen, this uterine vessels are right there. So you have to be very, 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 very careful. That's usually not the case, but it has happened. It happens in childbirth occasionally. There's no reason it w- couldn't happen here, but normally you're not going to have that extensive of a, of a laceration. Uterine perforation, less than 1% chance. In fact, it's listed as 0.2 to 0.5. And, uh, risk factors for this include higher gestational age, nulliparity, and again, provider inexperience. It's less likely if you adequately ripen the cervix because then you're not pushing as forcefully to get your instruments in through the cervix into the uterine space, the uh, uterine cavity. If uh, you think you've perforated the uterus and they become hemodynamically unstable, you need to do some exploratory surgery. Sometimes that can be done laparoscopically. If you're really concerned, you just go straight to X-lap. There you go. And then once you're in there, if the procedure hasn't been finished, then while you're in there, you can actually watch yourself from the, the laparoscope. So, so looking from the abdominal um, side, you can look to make sure that you're in the right space provides you some additional reassurance. If you haven't perforated the uterus, it might provide some additional reassurance that you're still in the right space while you're performing the surgery. You're going to need some extra hands, of course, for this part. So, Uterine rupture, again, less than 1%. And this is if that, that, that's documented uh, for patients who, who undergo medical abortion. And that's if a patient has a prior C-section versus 0.04% if they've had no prior C-section. So presumably higher risk with multiple prior C-sections, but I don't, we don't really have a lot of data to support that. So if they have one prior C-section, it's still very, very reasonable to use mesoprostol. So don't be frightened into doing surgical or frighten your patient into doing surgical if they've had a prior C-section. That's still a much less, much less than 1% chance. You give them risks, benefits, alternatives, and they make a decision. That's how this goes. And then you also have to consider your, your experience level too. If you're like, hey, you could do the medical thing or we could just knock this out with d and and you've done two of them, you might not be, that might not be very honest. <laughs> just remember that. DIC, extremely, extremely rare. This is whenever you get sort of widespread clotting around the body. So coagulation throughout the intravascular system. That's why it's called disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC. If you're concerned because there's persistent heavy bleeding and you've done everything else, Get a stat H&H, INRPT, coags, fibrinogen, et cetera, and make sure that you're not dealing with that. That's going to probably require, if, if you're certain about that, you're going to require a lot of blood and probably a stay in the hospital in the ICU. So keep all of that in mind. Infection is also very low risk. We're talking about 0.1 to 4%. Of course, these procedures are very rare. So a lot of this data is coming from observational studies, looking back and saying, hey, what happened with all these women who had second trimester abortions? So super low risk. 
in most studies that looked at this, there was a really poor definition of infection, right? Every, like even with COVID now, it's like, oh, you have, uh, you've got a low grade fever and you're short of breath, like you must have COVID. Well, we, we need like, these are not, those are nonspecific findings, right? Just like the way that we use nonspecific findings to diagnose chorionionitis. We don't actually go by the gold standard or even reasonable clinical um, judgment sometimes. So you get maybe an overcalling of that and overprescribing of antibiotics and not considering other etiologies for those nonspecific signs or symptoms. So it's probably on the lower end of the 0.1 to 4% is what I'm trying to say. Prophylactic antibiotics are recommended before DNE, but not before medical abortions in the second trimester. So that can reduce your risk even further. Doxycycline or cefazolin are reasonable. Doxy, 100 milligrams one hour before, or, uh, and then 200 milligrams two hours after is a great regimen. That's the one I trained with. I'm not even so sure that that's necessarily what everybody does, but I do it for, I, I remember doing that in residency and, and finding that there was a little bit of disagreement amongst providers as to what the best regimen was, but you can generally get away with that. So. And then pulmonary embolism is super freaking rare, 10 to 20 per 100,000. But if a person develops a PE or amniotic fluid embolism, 80% mortality rate. So watch out. Okay, that's that. So, so they've got hemorrhage. What are you doing? You're going to look at the cervix, bimanually assess the uterine tone, perform a transabdominal ultrasound to look for retained POC. If you need to, you can pop on a vaginal probe and look in there. Um, remember that there can be some bleeding inside there that are going, it's going to make it very, very hard to see if there's necessarily any POC. But if this is a couple hours later, you're going to get some hyperechoic material within the uterine cavity, and that can, that can point you in that direction. If you think atony is, is, is there by, na- by manual fundal massage, we talked about rectal or buccal uh, mesoprostol. Go big, 800 to 1,000 mics. You're not going to get much benefit from oxytocin in case you were wondering that because we're in the second trimester. There's, very, very, there's a paucity of oxytocin receptors at that time, so you need to, to watch out for that. You can may you may get some benefit from oxytocin, but really that shouldn't be your mainstay. Prostaglandins are going to be your mainstay, and if the bleeding persists, you need to make sure you've got a second bore, or large bore IV, IV fluids, blood products if necessary. Get all those lab studies we talked about. The reference ranges are uh, listed in a little um, table that I included in the show notes. Fibrinogen is your big one for DIC. Fibrinogen normal reference range is two thirty three to four ninety six. In pregnancy, that can be a little bit um, artificially elevated, so you need to be thoughtful about that. Transfuse if indicated. If uterotonics are not sufficient and you're, you're still worried about atony and whatnot, an intrauterine balloon tamponade. You could also consider UAE if bleeding persists. You could actually get control of bleeding through UAE for atony, cervical lack, or DIC. So that might be something that you're, you sort of start to put into motion while you're, you're rectifying some of the other etiologies. So keep that in mind. You can also get um, bleeding you know, inside the abdomen from an undiagnosed uterine perforation, right? So you've, you've poked through the uterus, there's bleeding into the abdomen. You don't see any bleeding on the outside. Everything seems fine, but the patient's you know, heart rate's going up and her, an hour later, her blood pressure in the PACU is plummeting. You need to definitely consider that. So just, you just, have to be, you just have to sort of be ready to work through this differential. And even though some of these things are rare, if they're not diagnosed, they can turn into some really, really big problems, um, very scary things for the patient and anybody who's waiting for them in the family, in the uh, waiting room. So hysterectomy is also an option. If it's, this is just like, guys, this is just like after childbirth. This is, I just did a, a, an episode on postpartum hemorrhage. Hysterectomy is a possibility. Um, don't be afraid to use it if you need to, but you're most likely going to benefit from an open hysterectomy versus going in with your, your straight sticks. So keep that in mind. Uh, the things that we can do to prevent hemorrhage, since we're talking so much about this, hemorrhage is, is, is always something we should be thoughtful about as surgeons. So 
pre-procedure cervical ripening is going to be a really, really a slam dunk for avoiding a lot of problems here, right? Uterine perforation and cervical lax can be reduced by doing that. Phase suppressing can, it has also been found to reduce postpartum bleeding if you used if you add it to your paracervical block. I can't give any recommendations on that specifically, but it is mentioned in the practice bulletin. It, it makes a lot of sense. So, and let's say like also we haven't really talked about this, but you know history of prior C-section, maybe one or two. Um, let's say three C-sections. So hey, misoprostol is not going to be um, not going to be recommended. Let's let's actually find you a provider that can provide you a D&E safely. And, and some imaging beforehand might even reveal abnormal placentation. So you might suspect some sort of accreta, increta, percreta, whatever. Prepare ahead of time for that. And if you've actually if you actually do suspect abnormal placentation ahead of time, make sure that you know it could be accreta, right? We could be talking about going straight to hysterotomy. But if it's like uh, you know, if it's maybe just a, you know a placenta that's that's covering the cervix, or we're not totally sure. Make sure you have uterotonics and blood products on hand. You can also, you also just need to step back and say, am I cool with doing an open hyst right now? You know, it's in the second trimester. It's going to be a, a different hysterectomy than the little fist size uterus you're, you're used to doing on those, you know, 55-year-olds with fibroids or 55-year-old with, you know, some, some, some precancerous endometrial cells. You know, this is not going to be your standard hyst. You need just, just to need to prepare if this is um, something that you're doing you know, on a Friday afternoon and you've got no support that you can call in to help you with an open surgery, then you may need to consider, like, when am I doing this? What are the possible ramifications of the day and time that I'm choosing to do this procedure? If you really are concerned about abnormal placentation, hist needs to be at the forefront. But you also, there have been people who have considered doing a UAE preoperatively, and it hasn't been found to be helpful. We may need more data, because um, I suspect that that probably would be really helpful. Um, you could even do like a, um, you can put like a an intravascular balloon, right? And it's a similar, similar to the embolization procedure, only you put a temporary balloon in there to stop blood flow to the uterus pre-procedurally. Those are all things that we haven't really, we don't have any data to support it or refute it. But I imagine it probably will be found to be helpful if we were to gather enough data. But right now the ACOG suggests that it's not helpful. So maybe an unnecessary expense prior to doing this procedure. Yeah, MRI is the way that, that we would find this out. Ultrasound is about 65% predictive. Um, MRI is far better. So if you have any, any suspicion on ultrasound, send for an MRI prior to the procedure, just so you know what you're walking into. And interestingly, even though UEA is not, is not helpful preoperatively, it can be very, very helpful postoperatively. Almost 50% of the time, UAE is going to be helpful for post-abortion hemorrhage if you think it's due to uh, abnormal placentation like accreta, etc. Okay, there you have it. I really, really enjoyed recording that back in the day, and I'm glad I got to repurpose it because a lot of that information hasn't changed, and I think it's really important nowadays to to really, I don't know, feel through the nuance of, of such a sensitive topic. The big takeaways are, for me, are that women have the right to do with their bodies what they wish to do, and that may go against your religious or any other, I don't know, predilections as to how you think the world should be. But this really falls to the pregnant person, the pregnant woman, and her partner. Fortunately, there are doctors out there that are willing to provide risks, benefits, alternatives to anything under the sun. Up to about 23 weeks, an abortion is possible. I certainly don't think I could ever personally go through an abortion after 13, 14 weeks. 
But I mean, I haven't been given a lot of the extenuating circumstances that I that I listed in the show that would put me in a really, really tough spot with my wife. So we're very grateful for not having to make that really, really hard decision. But I am glad that there are people out there that still want to support these decisions. And again, I realize that a lot of this details around this topic can be very confronting. So I appreciate you holding space for it and to just sit with it and to not have a gut reactive impulse to yay or nay it, but just to be with it. I feel like that's really where we need the needle to shift in this world if we're going to get through anything that's even remotely challenging in the future. So thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Nathan Riley. I'm the Holistic OBGYN, and I live in Kentucky, where with this overturning, I know that my very red state is going to completely abolish abortion. Um, in fact, the only abortion center, as I, far as I'm aware, is in Louisville, and it has terminated its practices, so to speak, for the time being until they get this whole thing settled down. So people in the area have to go to nearby states in order to seek these services, and that's even harder. So you can find me at BelovedHolistics.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. You can sign up for my collaborator program there. You can hire me as your doc. Check out my website store, all the products you need to keep yourself healthy to make sure your pregnancies run smoothly. If you haven't left us a review, please leave a five-star review. It really, really helps other people find the show. It really helps support me and my sponsors and everything else. So thank you so much for tuning in, guys. And um, I will see you next time on the Holistic Joanne podcast. Take care. <laughs>